Good evening, everyone. <laughs> Welcome to Necro Thursday. This week, it's me and Jeff, and I hope everyone's doing well. How's it going, Jeff? Not bad, man. How are you doing? Life is good, I have to say. Uh, one thing I want to add is we got we got to hurry up and do this, man, because I got to go to see the Misfits tonight. I just want to let you know that. You're going to see the Misfits? Yeah, man. They're playing at the Prudential Center in uh, Newark, New Jersey. And uh, okay. I will be in attendance along with my lady, Tina, and we're going to have a great time tonight. Have you seen the Reunited Misfits yet? Negative on that. I have never seen the Misfits perform. I realize that Dave Lombardo is playing drums for them, but this will be my first time experiencing uh, these songs performed by 75% of the original band. Who are all 75 now. <laughs> I'm close, I guess, you know. Yeah, uh, I saw the Michael Graves-led Misfits. I'm ashamed to say it. <laughs> um, this was, gosh, this was right before I moved to Boston, so 95, 96. Oh, wow. Was, yeah, 18, 19. Um, and it was the first time the Misfits were, were back ever. Like, they were gone for a long time, they were back, and they obviously didn't have Glenn Danzig singing for them, so they were playing um, a small place in Providence, Rhode Island. I can't quite... Babyhead, Club Babyhead. Oh, wow. Do you remember that place? That place is tiny for a band like that. Yeah, I told, I played... You, I'm sure you have, too. You played many, many shows there. Yeah, I went to a ton of shows there, too. Um, yeah, I would say, what, maybe like a 400 capacity room at the very most. I would say if that, honestly. Yeah. I, it was the most insanely packed I've ever seen that place. And... You know, it was kind of cool. It was like seeing a really good cover band. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like no dancing. It's without dancing. It's not. It's not the Misfits. I mean, a hundred percent. I mean, the whole concept and the aesthetic and just the skull. And you know, even though Danzig, you know, co-opted that skull from a Marvel comic book, um, mm. the whole vibe of the band is a hundred percent Glenn Danzig, man. So it's just like, yeah, it's like watching a cover band, in my opinion, too. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly what it was. And uh, one of my friends got into a fight about the two songs into the set and got thrown out. I remember that. <laughs> uh, I've seen yeah, Danzig. I, I, I've seen Danzig perform countless times, but never, uh, never the Misfits. So this is a pretty cool night for me coming up. That's amazing. I've never seen Glenn Danzig live. Period. Heard a lot of great stories uh, from from Justin. You know, Godflesh toured with uh, Danzig back in the. Uh, the 90s he, he had some very amusing stories about hanging out with glenn huge fan uh though i do love the misfits my favorite danzig stuff is the sam Haynes stuff for sure interesting um misfits would be my favorite first two danzig records are up there too great stuff classics yeah, I mean, I guess the first two Danzig records are almost like an extension of Samhain in some ways, you know, because it's some of the Danzig, the band Danzig, like Glenn. Uh, yeah. From my understanding is that it was, uh, there Samhain was going to get signed and then mm. it became Danzig. That's in a, in a nutshell. That's my understanding of the whole thing. The Samhain stuff seems a little looked over i don't know i know hardcore fans uh, worship those records but i i mean i don't think is that stuff even streaming no at this point nope you have yeah. to have the physical copies of those songs yeah it's like the forgotten era of, of his of his music uh it's a shame i'm sure they'll pop up someday oh, you know it's the same thing with rollins band like a lot of their, their best records you can't stream anywhere well i discovered 
uh, over the last few months that uh, hard volume is not streaming. However, uh, turned on, which has some of those those tracks. Some of the earlier stuff is starting to show up. Like those, those oh. those are the best records, man. Like the you know Lifetime, oh, yeah. hard, hard Volume, Turned On. Like those, you know, those early Rollins band. That that's the band at its crucial phase, you know, and, and that's starting to pop up now online. But yeah, the Sam Haynes stuff is. Uh, it seems to be conspicuously absent from streaming services. I wonder why. I never understand how that stuff works. Like, you know, it, it's a rights issue, I would imagine. I mean, doesn't Glenn, isn't that all Plan 9 stuff? Like, I imagine Glenn owns all the rights to those those songs. Yeah, I mean, he probably does. Maybe he just doesn't like it. I don't want anybody to hear this. Dude, you know? I, I mean, or he might be, there's, I'm sure there's some master plan going on with releasing it, I imagine. Maybe after this Misfit stuff is done. Because he's done tours yeah. as, like, Sam Hain. There was, like, a few years ago, Goat Whore went on a Sam Hain tour. That's right. That's you right. Know? Yeah. And, like, you know, with London, this... London May, I think, was playing in the band. And, you know, they had, like, yeah. you know, Damien or whatever showed up, I guess. And Steve Zing, you know, that kind of stuff. Yeah. I, this, this Misfits tour reunion thing has been going on way longer than, than I thought it would. I mean, we're coming up on, like, year, I mean, I don't know, five or six. Yeah. I'm not gonna think too much about it. I'm just gonna fucking have fun. You know what I mean? Like I, I'm because I'm one of those guys who wants to dislike shit, you know, and like talk shit about stuff. And oh, it's not the real misfits. I mean, all right, cool. Robo is not playing drums, but you got Dave Lombardo, which is an awesome replacement. I, you know? Yeah. And uh, I mean, yeah. You know, if, if it's Danzig, it's the misfits. Yeah, that's what I think. And then this after this this fall, there's um, as part of uh, Tina's birthday present. Uh, we're going to see Danzig down in Atlantic City with, um, you know, a, as like the, uh, it's the anniversary for the first Danzig record. Oh, God. Well, what anniversary is it? I don't know, like 30 or something like that. 30, yeah, it has to be at least yeah. 30, yeah. And, uh, yeah, it's like a whole big weekend we got planned. We're gonna, you know, we got the one staying at the, at the casino. It's at the Hard Rock. Um. Yeah, the guys in my in tombs are going. Everyone's going. Everyone's like, you know, all my friends out here are heading down for that show. It's going to be cool. Awesome, man. You know, uh, we usually start the podcast talking, you know, we'll, we'll check what we've been checking out. And uh, it's funny we start talking about music because there's one thing I wanted to bring up. I can't believe we didn't bring it up last last time. Oh, Swans put out a new album. Yes, I haven't listened to it yet. However, I'm aware that the record came out. Hmm. Yes, I've been listening to it a lot. Uh, very, very, very pleased to say that uh, I like it a lot. Uh, I wasn't crazy about the last one, Leaving Meaning. Mm -hmm. uh, this seems uh, like, you know, the last one felt directionless to me. I don't know. I, I know you liked it more than I did. Yeah. This one feels more like a band, more with more focus, more intent behind what they're doing. It's it's the better version of of their last record. Leaving me, that's that's what I think. Yeah, I need to. Um, I think I want to put that on on right after we're done here. While I'm while I'm I think you're gonna like it. Yeah, it's I, very I, mid era Swans. Like, see, that's uh, my favorite uh, era, actually. Like children, okay. children of God, and like soundtracks for the blind, and like you know that kind of stuff. I think is like probably my favorite era of the band. Yeah, it's so uh, like it kind of sounds like the stuff that was. Uh, compiled for uh various failures it's sort of in that vein yeah. 
I know I know children of uh, children of God. I know that is came out in the eighties, but stylistically, I always lump it in with the more mid period stuff because it sounds like the beginning of that era. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, but it's a it's a really good record, really heavy listen. You know, the guy's sixty nine, seven years old at this point. You know, he's he's got a few things on his mind. Sure, probably death. You know, I imagine it's weighing yeah. heavy on him. <laughs> yes, yeah, I, that that's what I gathered listening to it for sure. And uh, other things, I, I don't know if you were talking to me about this, but I started Black Mirror season six. Yeah, yeah, we spoke about it. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I only watched the first two episodes, but uh, what do you th- what do you think of season six? I, I think by the next time we talk, I'll be finished with it. But in, in general, two. in general, I think it's a hit. Um, there are things I find not that great about it, but uh, the first two, yeah. the second one, I really liked. The 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 one uh, about the uh, document they're making a documentary. Yeah. I thought that one yeah, was really. Cool. I like that one too. The first one I thought started off strong, and then kind of like. The end, the very, very ending was cool, but there was yes. like a, uh, I would say the, the beginning before you hit the conclusion, I feel like some of that stuff was a little long winded. You know what I mean? With the, okay, cool. You know, you're doing all this yeah. crazy shit. The thing, I still <laughs> go back to how the, the wild man, you know, the guy with the crazy sex looks like, looks like a guy who would get cheated on by his girlfriend. You know what I mean? <laughs> like that dude, that dude does not look like the kind of guy who delivers if you follow me. You know what I mean? Yeah. I- I thought that was strange, Cat. What? I thought that was strange. Asking myself, <laughs> it's like um, she's like talking about how crazy. Oh man, we had the best sex. He was like this wild man. And I'm like, okay, cool. It's like some dark like guy, you know, like a leather jacket or whatever. And then this dude shows up, and I'm like, no, that's the guy whose girlfriend cheats on him, not the guy. You know what I mean? Yeah, like he works for FedEx or something <laughs> like that. He's kind of got that look for him. Yeah, yeah. I know that I'm I, using I, broad generalizations here, but whatever. <laughs> It's that kind of morning. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, uh, yeah, I was struck by watching the first episode. Uh, I was struck by how different tonally it was from when I first started watching Black Mirror, or probably what, whenever it came out 10 years ago at this point. Uh, like, the show was deadly serious and dark and dreary, and there's a whole, there's a lot more humor to it now in, in, in the newer seasons. I, I'm responding to that as a, a little unfavorably. You know what I mean? Like mm. I, I, like I said, in general, I think it's a hit as a show, okay? But when I compare it to the other episodes in the earlier seasons, it's not as good. There are certain things I liked about it, like the second one about the, you know, the more like folky horror one, the British one. And yeah, that the, the one with Aaron Paul where they're in outer space, I thought that was pretty cool. I haven't gotten there yet. All right, yeah. But yeah, there's a little too too much uh there's like a softer edge to it which i don't appreciate really yeah which is interesting because I, I started watching that because this was a uh, fourth of july kind of hanging out looking for something to watch and we were watching jordan peele's new newer twilight zone garbage they're having a marathon horrible yeah you know yeah i mean i i guess there's a ver- like a way you can watch them all in black and white i think if you buy the blu-ray and i think that would certainly help but I mean, it was just so heavy-handed and so obvious, and I, 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 I can't imagine. I don't know. I, I wasn't around when the original Twilight Zone aired. Yeah. Uh, and I saw it much later. I mean, I, it was, I was wonder if it was the same thing for the original Twilight Zone, where people just kind of rolled their eyes, like, "Oh, yeah, I get what you're trying to say." I don't know, man. I, I've I've always thought very highly of the original Twilight Zone. 
I've I've That's always been a show. gigantic fan of that whole thing, and um, even you know Outer Limits, I really enjoyed too. Um, yeah. And I'm gonna the disclaimer before I say this, I'm gonna say that I am a registered Democrat. Um, I did not vote for <laughs> Donald too. Trump, and I uh, you know uh, believe in uh, racial equality. Um, mm-hmm. I think that Jordan Peele's Twilight Zone sucks and it has nothing to do with any of those other things. So I just wanted, before anyone wants to like, crucify me for being some sort of right wing, you know, extremist or something or some weirdo. No, I, I'm yeah. right there with you, man. Yeah. Like, it, it's not good. I, I, I'm not that impressed with Jordan Peele's output as a filmmaker. I think he's made one good movie, one okay movie. And, and and us, which I thought was just flat out bad. Yeah. And the twi- yeah, the Twilight Zone, his Twilight Zone. I, I was excited that that I was like, okay, th- this should be interesting. And when I saw it, it was just kind of, I don't know, man. Like, you, it's hard to recreate that that magic of the original, you know, because they were each they were like thirty minute plays. They felt like yeah, and this just didn't have that that fa- I don't know. And and it was just so hammer on into your head, uh, obvious there, with their uh, political messaging. Which again, I, I registered Democrat just like you. <laughs> I agree with it, but I, you know, be a little bit more creative about it. I guess that's my beef as well. I mean, like I think you know Rod Serling was was you know was primarily um, that era of Twilight Zone was. Um, really preoccupied with telling a good story that was like you know a horror story but still still a smart story and talking about the human condition and things like that and yeah. i feel like but the the for, first and foremost was telling the story i feel like peel his his thing is like his politics first and then the story second and like that's just not for me i mean if it's for you great but for me i want though i do enjoy when people put their their viewpoints in there, their points of view and their, you know, whatever political leanings they have is interesting to me, but like you got to tell a story and make it compelling first. And then that other stuff should be a layer that's incorporated into the storytelling, you know? Absolutely. Like, like the original Candyman versus his production of the Candyman. Uh, I, I thought that remake was eye rollingly bad. One of the worst horror movies I've seen. Oh yeah. Definitely. In the last few years. Yeah. You know, and, I thought yeah, people really liked it. I thought Nope was good. You know, I, I in general I thought Nope was 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 good. You know, there were things I had issues with some of it. Just I thought it was too long, and you know, I mean, you could listen to the episode we did on it. And then, you know, I thought the his first one was was awesome. I thought that was great. You know, yeah, it was good. Yeah, Nope has, has over time become my favorite of his. Yeah, yeah, and, I, yeah. I, I'm, I'm going to revisit that actually because I I've been thinking about that movie again, and I'm like, you know, I, I should I should watch that again, just check it out again, definitely. Yeah, it's it's got some problems, but yeah, okay, yeah. Listen to our episode. Scroll yeah. back. What about you, man? What have you been checking out other than the the new the, the reunited mysteries? <laughs> um, I've been checking out. I just recently watched uh, Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer again. Oh, jeez, yeah, dude. You know, very. I'm 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 kind of fascinated. I've oh, for my entire life, I've been fascinated with that movie. Sure. You know, it's um. In a lot of ways, it's 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 not. It, it's extreme in subject matter, but it's not like mm. an extreme horror film. Do you know what I mean? Oh no, definitely. And it, it has the. Uh, it, it, I remember I was uh, I think in junior high school when when I saw that, and it bothered me back then to the point where I just never wanted to watch it again. 
Yeah, yeah. It it um it's a movie that I keep going back to just because the vibe and just the atmosphere of it and Michael Rooker's performance and Tom Towles' mm-hmm. performance in it I think are great and uh, and it has this quality. It's almost like an art film in some ways. You know what I mean? It reminds me. It has almost like this European vibe to the way the film was made. You know? Oh, absolutely. It uh, it it almost feels almost in, in, in scenes like a like a documentary almost. It's got that low budget, sleazy kind of quality to it. Yeah, and uh, you know, and, and I think uh, it was very effective. You know, I was very young when I saw it, and then you know, mm-hmm. I started traveling around the country on, in bands, and I was like, man, if I, we go to the Midwest, someone's gonna kill me. You know what I mean? That's <laughs> I was afraid of getting serial killed. <laughs> In the 90s, yeah. whenever we went to like Illinois or Ohio or the, these places, you associate with guys like Henry Lee Lucas and Otis Toole and, you know, various, yeah. you know, Jeffrey Dahmer and all these guys, you know what I mean? Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, who made that movie? Because I remember that it was kind of not like his other stuff. I can't remember who uh, made it. McNaughton. Uh, the fuck's his name? John? Uh, John McNaughton. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, we we uh, Mike and I covered this a while back. Oh, I, I should go back and listen yeah. to that. You know, what's interesting too is that um, John, yeah, John McNaughton. What's interesting about it is that uh, he also had something to do with the score of the film too. Really? Yeah, and you don't remember the score because it's, you would, if you think back to that movie, right? You mm-hmm. remember it as not having any any score, but there actually is a score. I was gonna say I don't even I don't remember there being a score at all. Yeah, 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 definitely. And I actually, uh, Death Walls put it out. And I have a copy of it. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, yeah, it's very it's it's pretty cool to listen to it without the without the movie playing. You know, I bet. Related to that, I also watched the Austrian film Angst. Have you seen that? Oh, that's from late eighties, early nineties, right? Uh, I don't know what date it came, what era it came. Out. It's it's um. So I should have looked this up beforehand. <laughs> yeah, we we love doing this, man. Eighty throwing you some hardball questions yeah. here. Eighty three, yeah. Okay, I was kind of close. Yeah, I remember reading about that movie in like Rue Morgan uh, back, you know, fifteen years ago or whatever. Uh, that movie wasn't available anywhere. It was very hard to find. I remember trying to track a copy down could, couldn't get one well it's out you can you can pick up a nice blu-ray of it um i think arrow put it out it's got uh the, the one i have is um it has a uh, introduction by uh gaspar no and there's a um, mm. interview that york Budkerite did with him oh, wow. yeah another controversial guy with all of his you know necromaniac and shram and all that sort of stuff Oh, right, I'm sorry, yeah. ne- Necromantic. Necromantic 1 and yeah, 2. Yeah. yeah, and Shram. Very, very interesting movie. In some ways, connected spiritually to Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer because they're both films are loosely based on actual happenings, you know? Yeah, if I remember Angst had a very notorious reputation. Yeah, yeah, it was definitely... Uh, both both films. Both films were been chopped up, um, banned in England, you know, as nasties. And, uh, yes. you know, very hard to find uncut versions of those films. Mm. Uh, I got to check it out. You know, I kind of forgot about it. And, um, you know, like I said, I never found a copy and I just sort of forgot about it. Like you bringing it up 
uh, reminds me that uh, I need to watch it. Apparently, the scene that the Brits had problems with in Henry was where they rewound the murder scene. Oh, really? They were Otis Tool. Tom Towles' character was like, re- wanted to rewind the tape so he can watch the murder scene again. The Brits had a problem with that one. Really? That's the, that's the part they have a problem with? Yeah. Oh, is it that, 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 that's so interesting to me. I found that to be very, very disturbing as well, to be honest. Sure. But I mean, there, there's a lot more like uh, violent stuff in there. I thought they would have a problem with before that. Surprisingly, most of the violence takes place off scene, off camera, rather. Yeah, that's true. That's true in a lot of horror movies. When you when you uh, you think about them in your head, you think of them as more violent, and then when you rewatch them, you're like, oh, there's hardly a drop of blood in this. Yeah, there's a couple. There's like a beheading scene in, in Henry. That's like you know practical effects type of thing. It's very effective. There's like a lot of all, all the murders take place like. You see the aftermath of the murders, and then you just see these guys, these very unpleasant guys, like discussing it and figuring out like what to do, and you know, I don't know. It's just an interesting movie, man. Anyone out there who hasn't yeah. seen it, listen to our episode and then go out and and check it out. Sure. <clears throat> so let's give our uh, rundown of the Horseman Brethren. You know, we're yes. part of uh, this Illuminati of uh, a podcasting. That's what I like to refer to it as, the, the podcast Illuminati. That's us. The horsemen <laughs> of the podcasting apocalypse. And starting the week off on Mondays, we have Brandon Legion with Horrorwolf666. On Tuesday, we have the only metal podcast I actually listen to. You know, occasionally I hit up uh, the Heavy Hole podcast, you know, local tri-state area representation in the in the world of uh, podcasting but into the necrosphere is the number one metal podcast for me and that's brought to you weekly on tuesdays by jackie smith on wednesdays you get me with everything went black and who knows what'll come your way on that show thursday of course is necro thursday which you're listening to right now friday we have break the apocalypse with mike skindado's very own brother john draper and it's a uh, a very um, you know sort of commentary on uh, on society, and it's funny, and I highly recommend it. Also support their Patreon too. Sunday, after taking Saturday off, we come to Sunday, which is a blasphemy against God. We have <laughs> Soul Knox brought to you by Carl Hikara, and Carl and I are going to be recording another episode of Darkness Weaves our podcast dedicated to the work of Carl Edward Wagner. And that's going to be released on uh, a forthcoming episode of Soul Knox. And that's it, man. That's uh, all the content you need on a weekly basis, you know. And, um, and we're, happy much. To, yeah, we're happy to be doing it. Quite a crew we have. Yeah. And uh, this week we don't have any, any, any calls. But if you want to leave us a message on the Necrophone, you can hit us up at 908-913-0782. That's 908-913-0782. And we're compiling a list of all the recommendations. And we've started covering some of these, such as Burnt Offerings and you know, we, we, and, uh, Death Dream. You know, these are all ones that have, been, have come from what you guys have suggested to us. And I'm putting a list together. And uh, probably we're going to try to maybe do one, one a month. There's a lot, but we're going to try to maybe do one a month 
from the Necrophone. So if you guys want yeah. us to check something out, I can't guarantee we're going to do it for sure if it's something that we unanimously do not want to cover. But if it's a good recommendation or something interesting, even if the movie's not good, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll consider it and we'll do an episode on it. So there you go. Yeah, some good stuff. Uh, I've been really enjoying the, the messages. It's fun, right? It's I, I enjoy it too, mm. man. And and it's it's uh, part of the part of the whole thing now. I, I enjoy hearing from people, you know. Yeah, we have our regulars that call in. Um, it, yeah, it's just been fun. I love getting uh, getting feedback. I love you know discussing movies with pretty much anyone. Yeah. So for this week's episode, we're covering uh, Sinister, which um. A movie that Jeff and I, you, you've, you and I have been talking about doing this for a while, actually. Yeah, I think since I started doing this podcast with you, this has been on the list of films to cover. And we we were going to do another movie, but uh, it was maybe too daunting of a task. So we're like, let's, let's why don't you do Sinister? Yeah. It's also kind of timely because recently the guy who directed and co-wrote this, um, Scott Derrickson, he uh, had some recurring success with The Black Phone which also mm. stars uh, Ethan Hawke. So it's kind of um, you know, timely that we, we go back and hit one of his earlier works. Yes, yeah. Um, that would make an interesting double feature, I guess. Yeah, in a way, I, could, I was thinking the same thing. You know? So yeah, I, I, this is directed by Scott Derrickson, who directed Black Phone, uh, Exorcism of Emily Rose, which I haven't seen, and Doctor Strange. Oh, you never saw that? No, I haven't, actually. It's actually not bad. Yeah. Written by, co-written by Scott Derrickson and C. Robert Cargill. And um, Cargill wrote Sinister 1 and 2. I did not realize there was a sequel, Jeff. There is, and I've seen it. We'll talk about that for sure. Um, and he, okay. uh, uh, Cargill also wrote, uh, doc, co-wrote Doctor Strange. And, and Yeah, and the Black Phone. Yeah. Black Phone, yeah. And this was uh, an early Jason Blum production. Yeah, yeah, it was. I saw that in the, in the credits and was surprised, actually. I um, you know, Blumhouse has been kind of hit or miss. They're they're like this machine, it seems like that keeps churning out um, you know, material, you know, with like a relatively lower. It seems like they don't have like a such a high bar for um, you know, for for quality, maybe. Yeah, well, this was 2012, so I think they were still new to the game back then. Or yeah. They were, at least. Well, that, that's... And we always... Yeah, sorry, go ahead. They're like the metal blade of uh, horror movies. <laughs> started <laughs> off strong, and they just started putting out whatever. You know what I mean? Yeah, we've talked about it on this podcast, the Bloomhouse sheen that some movies have. You know what I mean? Yeah. And this doesn't happen. Definitely not. Uh so released on March 11th, 2012 at South by Southwest, and then in the U.S., October 12th, 2012. So, uh, you know, it did its little, little you know, uh, festival run. It's 109 minutes long, and I did not find this to be a long movie, actually. I didn't feel like it was, it dragged, it dragged in any points. Not at all, no. Apparently, this was inspired by a nightmare that Cargill had after watching The Ring, the 2002 Asian uh, Japanese horror film. Really? Yeah. Okay. I guess I can kind of see that. Yeah. I'm going to run down the cast. We've got Ethan Hawke as Ellison Oswalt, a uh, true crime writer. 
Juliet Rylance as Tracy Oswald, his wife. Fred Thompson as the sheriff who, you know, seems to be, doesn't like the fact that this dude moved into his town. Yeah. James Ransone as dep- as the deputy. And you might remember him from uh, shows like the like Oz and oh, not Oz the the Wire. He's in the second yeah. season of the Wire. Ziggy, Ziggy, yeah. Um, Michael Hall Daddario as Trevor Oswalt and Claire Foley as Ashley Oswalt. Those are their two children in this uh, in the movie here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, also have yeah. uh, Vincent D'Onofrio in there in a small role. Yeah, there's a couple of small roles in here. Uh, there's uh, this guy, Nick King, who portrays uh, the demon in it. You know, D'Onofrio is a small role in there. And, um, yeah. yeah. You know, um, speaking of uh, Scott Garrison, C. Robert Car- uh, Cargill, yeah, they've obviously collaborated a bunch. And I gotta say, I'm not really a super big fan of, of any of their stuff. I agree, except for this movie. Yeah, <laughs> that, that might be uh, you know spoiling our my opinion about this film, but this movie I think stands out as uh, probably one of their best things that they've done. Uh, oh yeah, by far too. Um, which interesting also too is you know we mentioned this is a Blue Mouse production. Everything I read somewhere that they were trying they were going for a PG thirteen movie with this. Really? Yeah. Uh, and with that in mind, I thought, well, you know, watching it, interesting. There's, there's no swearing in the movie. There's, I don't think, uh, hardly a drop of blood in the movie at all, but still just subject matter alone. And, 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 uh, uh there's, there's no way this was ever going to be PG 13. Yeah. But it did seem like they were trying to make like a big horror hit and ended up making something so much more substantial maybe accidentally well the fact that there was a sequel it feels like the um this entity was going was supposed to be like almost like a freddy krueger-esque sort of that was their intention at least yeah yeah i think so too yeah the the sequel sort of i mean like you said you didn't even know there was one yeah didn't have much of an impact uh which you know like yeah, I think they were trying to go for like uh, something like Saw. You know, they're trying to create like a new horror icon. And, you know, sometimes one and done is the way to go with that. I think so, especially this type of film. And, and we could talk about this later after we run down some of the plot points. But this really, this, this, the, 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 the narrative subject of this movie is something I find actually very, very interesting and connects with a lot of different things that I like. So, um, so yeah, you know, maybe, maybe let's just run down some of the key elements of the plot here. Yeah, sure. Yeah. But before that, I have to say the title. <laughs> the title is like, it, it has nothing to do with the movie other than like sort of describing it. Like it's like kind of calling a movie scary. Yeah, no, I agree. It, that's, that's a good point, actually. <laughs> I don't know. I, I just find that uh, amusing. Although perfect title it is quite a sinister little film yeah no definitely so as i mentioned in the cast rundown um ethan hawk plays uh, ellison who's a uh, true crime writer and um so that uh, it seems like he's pretty famous kind of notorious in a lot of ways is at odds with the police you know law enforcement because i guess he has you know uh 
portrayed law enforcement in an unfavorable light. And uh, as most uh, true crime does. Yeah, exactly. And uh, also, probably rightly so, because I mean, if you think about it, you know, and I'm not you know, look, I, I know we need the cops and everything. I've never been a huge fan of cops my, my whole life, honestly. You know what I mean? Sure. Um, and also, most of the dudes I know that became police officers, that's literally the only thing they could have successfully done in their lives. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Do you know what I, I mean? Yeah. You know, dudes who are getting degrees in engineering and stuff are not becoming cops, you know? Right. As a matter of fact, when I lived in Boston, one of our, you and I both lived in Boston for a while. I remember that there was a sandwich shop I used to go to um, by where I worked downtown for lunch. And there was this guy that was just kind of, I didn't, couldn't quite figure out like what his job was there. He didn't work the register. He didn't make any sandwiches. He just kind of like was around. Like he'd, you know, sweep up and like, you know, mm. clean the toilets and things like that. And then I discovered that he just passed the exam to become a cop. Wow. <laughs> so there you go. That's my that's my impression of, of police officers. You know, hey, sorry if I offended anyone out there, but that's how I feel. You know what I mean? I'm not into like that authoritarian like you know type of guy, honestly. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, <laughs> he doesn't like cops. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he just gets into town. They're still moving this stuff into the house and the sheriff. And the deputies show up, so it's like they were they were ready for him, and they let it they let it be known that he's not welcome here. And uh, you know, this is a really small role for Fred Thompson. Uh, I think one of his last roles too. Uh, but you know, he he was in politics for a while. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, he was a senator or some shit. Congress, I, I can't remember, but I know he was in like some some films uh and then he just wasn't for a while because he was uh yeah in, in politics he's a republican oh okay. or was he since passed away yeah that's, and that's uh I, I don't, yeah it's kind of cool to see him pop up again again he's in two scenes but uh he's the, the kind of guy that uh, when you see him on screen you know he's gonna be good yeah no definitely actually the move the opening shot of this film kind of yeah. sets the tone for the whole movie man and it's very effective so very yeah the opening shot of the movie is this like grainy super 8 photograph of a, of a family with bags over their heads being hung from from a tree and with this like very very disturbing unsettling music playing and i have to say the score for this film was actually awesome Yes, um, he has done a ton of horror movies, uh, this guy, Christopher Young. He yeah. did Hellraiser 1 and 2. Really? I didn't know he yes. did that. There's also music from Sun in this movie. I didn't know that either. Yeah, uh, the ending scene, that's Sun playing. Huh. Wow. I wonder if the score is so, available yeah. anywhere. I want to see if I, I wouldn't mind owning this. Oh, anyway, so yeah, this scene really sets the tone for the movie. Like, you know, you're in for this like dark ride through some kind of nightmare world after seeing that. Yeah, the movie is not even uh, two minutes in, and you like, there's no way that's going to get a PG-13. I mean, <laughs> like, it, it's so unsettling. So this movie was rated R, right? Yeah. Okay. Very R. <laughs> yeah. All right. I, I didn't know. Like, I didn't really, you know. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, so anyway, we have we're setting the tone 
for uh, the Oswald family moving into this new house. And it seems like that they move quite a bit because there's always this discussion of them settling in and the kids make, you know, not, not being able to make friends. And uh, the son has these kind of emotional problems and, you know, and then the daughter is like, you know, an artist. You know, they've made this agreement where she can, you know, paint and draw on the walls of her room as long as it's not throughout the house. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the family in this movie, they don't have a lot of screen time, but uh, the stuff you do get with them is very good and I thought authentic. Um, yeah. A lot of times in these kind of movies that the scene with the, 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 the family talking to kids, I always like is a little cringy, doesn't, doesn't ring true. But in this, it does the way he talks to his kids, everything about it, uh, the arguments he has with his wife, it all feels real. It feels like real conversations that people have. Exactly. And, and, the vibe of the family, you seem that it, you wouldn't necessarily say that there's a negative family vibe, but there's a, you can tell that they're, they are traumatizing the kids slightly. You know what I mean? I don't, I don't know if I'm accurately describing that situation, but you can see that it's maybe not the healthiest environment for the kids. Right. And, um, I think that's all due to Ellison, um, or Elson, how the fuck you say his name? Ethan Hawke's character. Yeah. Um, he is like another horror movie bad dad. We talked about this a lot when we, when we covered The Lodge, about how every decision the dad made was just absolutely stupid. And in this, uh, I would say the same thing about Ethan Hawke's character. He um, is very motivated. Like, he thinks he's doing the right thing by his family. But he's really only interested in himself. Yeah, exactly. You know, and he's not necessarily evil; just that he's self self serving. You know, and there's even like a moment in where they were talking about his legacy, right? You know, concerned about yeah. his legacy because there's there's a discussion between uh, the husband and wife about you know him maybe writing his fiction because a lot of his true crime stuff is where all of his issues come up with people, like you know the kids at school like making fun of the kids because his dad's like uh, some creepy like true crime writer who's in the news right. occasionally he'll, he'll have these television appearances and i gotta be honest that part seemed a little unreasonable I mean, when i was a kid i didn't know who any true crime writers were to be honest you know but whatever it's yeah part of the story, yeah you know yeah sure it, it, it's a it's a it's a bit of a stretch but um you know, it adds a lot of motivation to the Ethan Hawke character and I think makes him more interesting. Like, yes, he's not a bad guy, and but he doesn't realize how selfish he is. And he's also, you know, uh, wanting for his glory days. He had a hit book, Kentucky Blood, they say 10 years prior. And he's kind of, you know, been struggling ever since, never quite reaching that level of, of, of fame and success. And his wife and him, they, she has like a loving suggestion to him that, well, maybe, you know, you can teach or write fiction again, you know, or and he's right. like, oh, my legacy, you know, it's not like he's concerned about that. He doesn't want to teach, you know, which I, and I, I get that. That's kind of like the, a cliche really with like creative people and teaching, you know, like, oh, dude, you know what I'm trying to oh. say? <laughs> yeah, like you become like an you art teacher. You don't know how many times I've heard, why don't you give lessons and <laughs> things like that after the band broke up? Yeah. Like, because I don't fucking want to. Exactly. You know, I get it. I found uh, Ethan Hawke sort of uh, 
I found them kind of relatable. Like there's a all creative types are kind of the same way. Yeah, they're on this like mission that is very singular, you know, and especially as a writer, you spend all this time basically, I mean, hours of the day by yourself locked away in your room, you know. And yeah. uh, and that's kind of like they they even address that when they first move in about how the kids aren't allowed to go into the room and the dad is uh, always keeps the door locked. You know, because there's right because of the subject matter of what he's writing about. There's unpleasant things there, you know. But the wife brings up the point that well, your legacy is your family, not these books that you write. You know, so there's like mm. kind of the 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 seeds of uh, of a conflict within the marriage. You know, and that's not a major plot point, but it's something that just gives you the idea. It's a, he's like a Stephen King character. You know what I mean? Mm. Where Stephen King oftentimes. You know, for example, The Shining is a perfect example of like him writing himself into the story, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And oddly enough, that's exactly what Ellison does in, in the end. Yeah, this remind actually a lot of this reminded me of like a Stephen King sort of story in some ways, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I, I can imagine reading this in one of his uh, collections you yeah. know, 20 years ago. Um, and obviously, Stephen King was probably a huge influence on the writer, uh, C. Robert Car Cargill. Yeah. So now the, the creepiest part of the movie is uh, he finds this box of Super 8 films. And mm. this is like one of my favorite things that happen in movies. Whenever they're like some relic from the past comes back into the few into the present you know and even like that you remember that archive 81 show that got canceled after one season yes i do remember that i mean that, that whole movie was about media from the past you know what i mean analyzing old media and having it you know like something coming as a result of that and that's what this movie basically these are snuff films yeah yeah and uh yeah the, the idea of like haunted objects or cursed things I, I love that kind of stuff too, man. Yeah. And uh, shooting this on on uh, on Super Eight uh, or sixty millimeter, whatever it is, like really, really effective. Um, and, and at the time, found footage was really big, so it was kind of cool that they incorporated that into uh, your standard narrative film. The other element too of this, which really is effective, is how dark everything always is inside the house. Yes, yeah, we noticed that, but but not dark in a murky sort of way. You, everything is very clear. It's just really darkly lit, like just a scene with the family at dinner, or a scene with the 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 husband and and the wife in bed has this very like unsettling, menacing tone to it, and that's just with the the how they lit it, how dark it is. Yeah, and, and that dinner scene really struck me too. Because like you would think a dinner scene would be like well lit, you know. There's like you know, yeah. But no, their faces just sort of like come out of the shadows. You know what I mean? There's like everything is just this blackness around them, and then they their faces poke out of the shadows over this dimly lit table. You know, and and that's that's how they're enjoying their dinner that night. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I got. I mean, visually, this is the that director's best move best looking film by uh by far so the uh you know ellison gets obsessed with watching these films okay 
and uh, you know he gets drawn into this world, and this is going to be the subject of his new true crime book. Was try to figure out like what you know what 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 the background is for all this stuff. All right. Well, we should say he moved into the house of the murder he's investigating. Right. And he comes to find tapes from other murders, and man, the, the, like you said. The, the tapes are are so effective. All the ways these people die in the snuff film are probably the worst ways you can die. So the I question mean, is, is who's making the films? Yes. He even writes that down. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, what were you going to say? Oh, no, no, nothing. And then the, 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 just saying that the, the further he gets into this, the more you start to see him. His appearance subtly changes. You know, he looks a little bit more tired. He's, he's drinking more, um, you know, stuff like that. And then kind of strange things start happening to him, you know, uh, yes. around, around the house, like things that, you know, are, are have a supernatural feel to them. Right, like the scorpion uh, he finds uh, in the attic, the snake he finds. At one point, he looks back at uh, uh, pictures of... Uh, of, of the house, uh, you know, real estate, uh, and he notices that the box isn't there. The box of films that he found isn't there. Yeah. So who put it there? And then uh, in his uh, obsessive an- analysis of these films, well, first he learns out how to tra- how to digitize everything. You know, so now he has like a digital MP4 or whatever of uh, you know MOV file of these um, films. So he's, he's able to watch them and zoom in on certain things. And he sees the face, a weird black metal face poking out of the shadows. Yes. Yes. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, he also learns how to edit film in a, in a, in a, a like, there's a Google scene in this. <laughs> yeah, That's one of your favorites. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, I could have done without that. Like I, they could have cut that. It would be believable to me that this got writer guy in his like you know forties would know how to edit film. Like, you know, maybe he took a class like, uh, in in high school or college. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. it, it struck me as odd. Like, what? Well, you don't need a scene of him looking up how to edit film. You think anyone's in the crowd's like, oh god, also this guy also knows how to edit edit film? No way. Well, well, <laughs> these know, like, da- these days everyone knows how to make video. I mean, I don't. I personally, I don't know how to do it. I got to be honest with you. I don't know a thing about yeah, I, editing film. But apparently everyone yeah. else does in the world. And um, yeah. what would be more effective would be he taking these fucking archaic Super 8 reels and getting them digitized at some off-site place. Right. Like that would yeah, have been so- a more effective scene where he takes these movies. But then again, this might be a little bit of a flaw. What would you do if you worked at like one of these spots that digitizes movies and someone dropped off these snuff films for you to edit, to uh, make... Uh, MOV files out of. I mean, I I would probably have to say something to someone. I mean, yeah. Well, you know, me. I probably wouldn't even think it was real, you know. But clearly, it it is. But you know, that's interesting too because you know he also at one point picks up the phone to call the cops, and but then he he looks at a copy of Kentucky Blood on the shelf and thinks, no, like I I like. He knows what he's doing is wrong in his head, and that it's maybe he's bitten off more than he can chew. Maybe he's in a situation he doesn't fully understand. But the power to 
of, of fame and money and glory is, is, is too much for him. Yeah, we also see him, you know, we, we catch him in the twilight of his career too, you know what I mean, where it's like he's trying to, re like you said earlier, to recapture his glory days, you know? Yeah. yeah and so. yeah, yeah, I thought that was a nice touch. Also, he calls the cops, you know, you don't have a movie. so Or, or maybe you do, just a very, a very different one. Right. But he does call the cops eventually, and that's how we meet the deputy. Yeah, deputy uh, doesn't have a name. He's credited as deputy so and so. Yeah, because that's what he kind of presents that to him. Like the guy rolls up because uh, you know he was this where he fell or whatever, like or he saw some. Yeah, he, fall, yeah, some he falls. Through, yeah, he falls in his attic. He hits a weak spot in the floor and falls through the floor. And the cops come. Oh, oh, because he thought maybe there was an intruder. Okay. Right there, you go. That's what it was. So. And that's when the deputy, you know, recognizes him. He wants to get a, you know, a, a, his book signed or whatever. And uh, and he's like, "Well, I got, I got some books here. Let me sign it." So, and then he talks about how he's like, "You know how in your your books in the section where you thank people, you know, you always refer to deputy so and so about from this law enforcement agency who wouldn't be, uh, you know, wouldn't have been able to have done it without him." And he volunteers himself to be his deputy so-and-so in this particular caper that he's exploring. Right. Um, now, this is an actor I like a lot. Um, I actually saw him have a meltdown at the, the, the Beverly Center once oh, <laughs> when really? I lived in L.A. When you lived in L.A.? <laughs> yeah. What, was he, what yeah. happened? Tell me the, what happened. Yeah, I, we were in the parking structure, and I recognized him. I also got to point out uh, ISIS drummer Aaron Harris knows him. Oh, okay. did uh, yoga together. Oh, wow. And I saw him. I was like, "Oh, hey, that's that actor, you know, Aaron's buddy. Maybe I'll say hi." <laughs> I mean, obviously, I didn't. I always think that in my head. I see someone. I'm like, "Yeah, they probably know who I am. I'm gonna say hi." <laughs> um, but yeah, he was like, he was going through his his trunk of his SUV and just kind of throwing shit around really haphazardly. And he seemed really stressed out. It's like, yeah, I'm just I'm just gonna go to my car. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'll just avoid this. And at one point, I think I heard a loud banging and a fuck. <laughs> so, yeah, sidebar. Anyway, <laughs> uh, I, I like this actor a lot. He he is good in everything he does. He brings a certain energy uh, to his performances. He's good in this. I got to say, though, it's a little humorous that I don't think the movie really needs. Yeah, you know what I'm trying to say. Yeah, he's he's played a little a little uh, heavy-handed with the um, the over-eager kind of small town dude, you know. Just a little, yeah. Um, I just think this movie is so oppressively dark and disturbing, and I understand the, uh, you know, oh, we need to break this up a little bit. It needs to just have a little undercurrent of humor here and there. I don't think it fits in a movie like this. And, and do you, does a movie really need that though? You know what I mean? Like I, I don't, I don't think it does. like the lodge. We're, we're some of this reminded me a little bit of the lodge at times too. I mean, totally different types of films, but there was no humor in the lodge, as far as I remember. No, no, I get exactly. Uh, I thought the the same thing as as well. And yeah, that movie is such a bleak experience, and this this is too. Yeah. But yeah, I, I, yeah. Again, I like I said, I think they were trying to make like some sort of like mainstream horror hit. So you know, a little comic relief is 
what they're going for with Deputy Stone. So I think. Yeah. So it turns out that this image that he saw in this video is uh, okay. There's a couple things going on here. He notices daughter's drawings. Or, or there's drawings with that, that have a character called Mr. Boogie. Like, that's mm-hmm. not part of the family. You know what I mean? There'll be like a, a family unit drawing with a tree or something like that. And then there's another entity there called Mr. Boogie. Right. All right. So that's, you know, kind of creepy. Definitely. Oh, yeah. For, for sure. Yeah. He's starting to put the pieces together and realizing he's in way over his head. And here's a guy who does true crime, doesn't believe in the supernatural, and I think he's in denial about how, like, what's happening. Maybe he's trying to find a logical explanation for this. He can't. So, of course, uh, we we locate um, the Vincent D'Onofrio character in this. He was like a, a they have a, a like a FaceTime ex- exchange, you know, and he's like, yeah, a, which, yeah. I'm sorry, go ahead. What are you gonna say? Oh no, no, no. I, I just thought it was a strange uh, visual choice to do. Uh, like, like they have like a Skype conversation since Deputy So and So says he's local. Yeah. And uh, I'm like, well, why don't they just meet face to face? I, I, I don't know. Nitpicky, strange choice. I thought. I was thinking the same thing too. Actually, it's like I there were there should have been a scene like it just would have seemed a lot cooler if he went to his office at the university and there was like. You saw books, you know, maybe like the Necronomicon was there or something, you know what I mean? Or like some kind of occult like artwork hanging from the walls and and you sit down and he's got this cool desk with stuff on it. You know, that was how it would have been, I think, a little bit better, you know? Yeah, yeah, I, I completely agree. And you have Vincent D'Onofrio, who's great in everything he does. Maybe D'Onofrio was like out of the country or something like that on vacation when they shot this. Or yes, something. yeah. Yeah, that's the only thing I can think of. I just thought that was a really weird choice. Yeah. Um, but he's the guy who's basically going to give the exposition dump of of of, of you know, the the legend of this demon. And I know this is more your wheelhouse, Mike. You're you're more into this stuff. Is yeah. uh, is this a real thing from mythology, or is this well, made up for the movie? In the movie, it's called Bagul. All right. But what I read it as as uh, Moloch. There's like a I mean, because they talk about how this is part of like Christian mythology, right? Now, Moloch was um, part of it's in the book of Leviticus, and it's like a Hebrew part of the Hebrew like uh, mythology. And uh, Moloch uh, was like a you know sat, there was like a child eater basically, and they would sacrifice children to Moloch. So mm. that's how I see Bagul being like the same as Moloch, especially since they tied it to uh, early Christian mythology. Oh, and, and, and uh, he had a brother or something like that. I can't remember if this was in the movie or something I read. And like there's an explanation why he doesn't have an eyes and mouth. Yeah, that that I, I that Moloch has eyes and eyes and a mouth. That might have been some okay. light yeah. license they took with uh, with the character. But I thought I thought the mythology was kind of cool. Yeah. Uh, like you know, he uh, he can come at you through images, you know, with, through drawings and things like that. So it makes sense he would try to stay alive through uh, more modern <laughs> means of technology. You know, you see him, you see like a photo of him on on Ethan Hawke's laptop, and it moves. You know, he's there. He's he's alive in these images. I thought that was I thought that was interesting. Well, this is the part of the film that really, really grabbed me. 
I mean, even like okay. when I saw this thing the first a long time ago, because I think um, going way back to the idea of uh, tulpas, you know, which are these entities that don't they don't exist in the real world, but they're sort of created by the collective consciousness and exist in a different in a non not not in the real world and, and somewhere else. You know what I mean? And that's what uh, you know. Remember Slender Man? You know? Oh and, sure, um, yeah, yeah. You know, so it's like, so I guess a tulpa, trying to define it more, it's like, um, it's a, a being that kind of materializes through like thoughts, you know, it's, it's, um, you know, it's created by like people concentrating on something, you know what I mean? Mm. So yeah. that, that's kind of like, you know, and then when Slender Man happened, uh, it's the idea of something that doesn't really exist in the, in the physical world, but enough people believed in it. And the idea of it motivated people to actually go out and do murders. Right. Do you know what I mean? So the question is, is Slender Man real? And it's like, well, right. if enough people believe in it being real, it is real, right? Yes. Yeah. And that's kind of like what tied into this Bagul slash Moloch idea. It was like, this doesn't exist in the modern world. It only exists in this media, media that people are looking at, right? And it takes shape because maybe it took shape thousands of years ago because enough people believed in it and it just kind of propagated into modern society, you know? Yeah. Fascinating idea. Something that actually, uh, like I'm working on this essay that I'm writing and it's going to be a, um, a future episode over at the Patreon. Um, everything went black. Uh, long shadows that Ralph and I are dealing about true detective and mm. the weird elements of that story where the character Errol is motivated, you know, by this mythical thing, you know, and Carcosa doesn't exist except in his head, you know, right. And whether or not it's supernatural or not, you know, and it's supernatural in a sense that it exists in his head and it's motivating to do these things. And that's kind of like connects to this, like that idea that there's like, this ethereal thing out there that is creating that has results in the physical world, but only exists in this ethereal world of thoughts and nightmares and stuff like that. Right. So yeah, that's 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 a uh, that's one of the reasons why I dig this movie so much is this uh, Bagul character doesn't exist in the physical world, but there's physical world consequences to you know it, it possesses people, it creates a bond with them and it motivates them to do all these evil things. Yeah. It's very cool. It's very cool that he's hardly in the movie at all. Yeah. Exactly. It's just a face here, like an image there. And it's not really over explained. You know what I mean? It's still kind of vague. You're sort of right there with, with, with the character. Like you're never really a step ahead of him. You know, his anxieties and everything, you feel him. You start to really feel him. Uh, unravel. Also, um, the the design for the character is kind of interesting because I guess um, you know Cargill crafted it again as like these kind of black metal, like corpse paint, like looking faces, which he saw online. Yeah, they actually specifically even mentioned black metal in the movie. <laughs> I didn't catch that. Really? Yeah, Vincent D'Onofrio, like uh, when he uh, looks at the symbol. Uh, that that uh, Ethan Hawke has found in on, on the tapes. 
He's like, no, that's not like a pentagram. That's this isn't something you'd see in some, you know, like Nor- Norwegian black. Oh, that's right. About black metal. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Now I remember that part. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, um, it's clear we like this movie. Like, you know, there's uh, after you get that scene, you get there's the, you get to some scenes later in the movie that really almost derail the movie for me. Okay. Uh, and it's the CGI ghost children. <laughs> yeah, I could see that. Yeah, mm-hmm. it would have been effective I mean, without them too. I think. I yeah, I don't think you really need them at all. I mean, it, it, you know, it, the movie kind of, it pushes you where it needs to to go. Like, um, I, I think that it was just a little heavy handed. Like, you didn't need the ghost children because it's uh, you know you start to piece things together as ethan hawk does uh that you know who like who's making these tapes and then you know one kid from every from every household is going missing you kind of get there i don't think you really need the ghost children it doesn't fit and it feels like it belongs in a more generic crowd pleasing kind of horror movie and it it just cuts the the, the tension here the the anxiety this movie gives you, right? I I don't know. It it, it doesn't fit. It, it's it's of a different movie. Yeah, no, I agree, and and that that speaks to what you were saying about how it's like this movie was maybe the intention was to make a, you know, a franchise out of it or something like that. Yeah, and it just yeah, it's it's the one thing I remember even the first time seeing. I'm like, oh man, we're not gonna go like have these helpful ghost children thing, are we? Please no, and. I'm, I'm glad it doesn't go that route. I'm glad it doesn't become the focus of the movie. It just, I don't know. It, it, it's like a, one of the, 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 the few flaws of, of the movie. Yeah. Um, so that leads us to, uh, you know, what, what actually is going on, like the process of this whole thing of, uh, you know, the young daughter actually becoming the one member of the family that actually carries out the wishes of Bagul. Yeah, it's good misdirection too because it thinks you think the movie's kind of pushing you towards the sun. Yes. Uh, so yeah, I thought that was a nice little little bit of uh, misdirection. So yeah, um, yeah, Ethan Hawke realizes he's in way over his head. Something is going on here. He'll never. He doesn't want any part of. They they panic, pack up, and uh, move back to their old house, which. Uh, I, uh, I guess, I mean, if you think about it, it it's it's a little silly. Like, Bugal's plan is to get you to move. So if he can kill you or get to you, I don't know. But, I mean, the movie's so good, I was like, okay, yeah, sure, whatever. Yeah, you move, and, and that, that's what carries out the, the, the his his timeline or something. Yeah. Um, and it leads to a pretty bleak ending oh, for a man. movie that was trying to be a fucking crowd pleaser, man. <laughs> the movie that's what i mean it's like it, it's definitely more in line with like the lodge man like where the ending is just so dark and black and it's just such a bummer you know yeah i mean i remember being shocked because when i saw the cgi kids i was like all right this movie's gonna go to the you know it's gonna have some sort of happy ending fake out the end but like it really went to some very dark places i was not expecting what what I thought was going to happen was that they were going to somehow defeat Bagul, you know, yeah. 
but there was going to be the door was left open for like, well, you know, he just retreated to some ethereal world where he still exists. He just, they just defeated him this time, you know, but he's still yeah. at war with like the rest of humanity, you know? That's exactly what I thought first time seeing it. So they fucking went there, man. I got to give it to him. <laughs> um, so, yeah. So the daughter becomes the, the instrument of Bagul and murders the family. And uh, there's like... <laughs> <laughs> that final scene, man, with Ethan Hawke's character, Ellison, just resigned, understanding, realizing what's going on. And it's just it's fucking dark, man. It's so dark. It is so unsettling. The look on his face as he is drugged and, and, and tied up. It's a yeah, it, it's like a look of defeat. It's not even like terror. Because, you know, like he's looking at his wife and kid tied up. He knows exactly what's going to happen. And he realizes it's all his fault. Yep, that's right. And but once again, Bagul not actively doing anything in this movie. Just that's the motivator for, for things that are in the material world to happen, you know? Right. Yeah. Which kind of makes him even, even yeah, it makes him scarier to me. But he's not a physical presence. Yeah, you know, and it ties into like a lot. It makes this movie made me think about a lot of different things, motivations, and justifications for things that happen in the real world. Like you know, if you think about you know the thousands of years of conflict that happened just because people believe in different types of gods and stuff. You know, mm. and that this is it speaks to that. You know, and also the whole tulpa idea. You know, and and. Uh, whether the supernatural, whether or not things are, are actually supernatural or not. And the, the argument is that if people actually believe in something, then it is real. You know, if it motivates you to go out and murder someone, then it, who's to say it's not real, you know? Right. And that, that would have been a very interesting idea to explore in, in, in sequels. And from what I remember, the sequel just goes into the generic sequel. Route. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's right. So you watch the sequel. That's right. I was going to watch it last night and I fell asleep because <laughs> I remember I was like, I did see this when it came out. It was terrible. Maybe I'll watch it again. And I was asleep within like five minutes. Well, there you go. But yeah, it, it's, it's, it's very disappointing uh, as most horror sequels are trying to be a, you know, like I think if this was like a nineties or eighties movie, it would have been like a direct to video kind of thing. Like it, yeah. this was very uninspired. Um, too bad because it sets it up for you can go in some very interesting directions with this and uh, it just it, it just doesn't um, but yeah I mean what we got like like again they were trying to do some big horror hit and I think they've made something way more substantial I mean this is a big budget Hollywood horror movie with, with known actors um, so it wasn't really it expecting too much and what we got was i i think this is one of the better or more movies of the last 23 years sure keep that in mind for our uh, forthcoming uh analysis of the first quarter century of the new millennium horror oh i definitely will yeah. like i said a few flaws i could do without the cgi ghost kids maybe like I, I feel like humor is could be completely absent from the movie and keep that tone there's some silly shit too i mean like you like having to move from the house to a new house i, I don't really quite understand the logic 
or how no one could catch that. You know, no cop, but I could realize, hey, these people all like previously lived in a murder house. No one put that together. Yeah, that's true. That's a flaw. You know, that could have kind of been like a little bit better writing could have dealt with it, though, I think. Yeah, and also, like, yeah, there, there's some weird, like, you know, when he moves back into his old house, yeah, he burns the, the film and the Super 8 camera, and then it shows up at his house, at his new house, which I like. I like that idea of a cursed object. You can't get rid of it. You're fucked. This thing is with you forever. I like that. But, like, when he goes through the box, he, <laughs> he finds a thing labeled extended cuts. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. That's a little goofy. <laughs> a little bit, yeah. you know, a little bit like, you know, Bugal is a, uh, you know, uh, you know, film fan, you know, it's about director's cuts. <laughs> the direct <laughs> Bugal murder, bu- bu- whatever, Bugal murders, ex- the director's cut. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It was very silly. And, you know, I, I, you know, maybe like he goes through the tapes and finds something he didn't see before. And it's stuff that was cut out. It didn't need the label extended cut. And, it, it tells you what you already know. The, the kids of, uh, are the ones taping this and doing the murders, the missing kids. And, you know, he even says that at one point. He was watching, like, oh, my God, it's the missing kids. Yeah, we know. <laughs> like, you don't have to say it out loud. Right on, man. So that's our, uh, our, our analysis on this, this film. So what, yeah. so what what do you give it as a score? Uh, 4.5. Dude, you and I, for what seems like the first time ever, actually agree on a score. I give it a 4.5 as well. Oh, nice. Yeah, it's not quite a 5 because of those little things. Uh, but the movie is good enough to overcome what little uh, you know nitpicks I had. Um, I think it's cool that this didn't really become a franchise. They, they tried a sequel. Didn't really work. I don't think anyone gave a shit. Uh, but yeah. For a Bloomhouse movie and what they were trying to do, they they made something that was clearly very disturbing. And uh, I think a lot of people watched this movie who don't normally watch horror movies and it probably ruined their fucking day. Yeah, yeah, uh, definitely. Good on them. Yeah. Yeah, you know, because this doesn't like... It might have a little bit of that feel of a mainstream horror movie, but it it feels more like like a European downer from like the eighties or nineties. You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. And and the way just the darkness of the way it's shot, like everything just it just looks like you're in an uncomfortable place the whole time, you know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like I said, visually this is the director's like best movie. I, I really haven't liked anything he's done since then. Yeah, I mean, you either. and I talked about the black phone yeah. and it was just, you know, whatever kind of, I thought it was forgettable. I, I thought so too. It's interesting though, that he, he rekindled his uh, relationship with Ethan Hawke for that film. I thought that was kind of cool. Yeah. I mean, it's not a total dud. Ethan Hawke is good in it. Uh, James Ranstone is in it. He's in, in a small part. He's really good. Uh, it it just wasn't to my taste. It feels like they had their mainstream horror hit with that movie. I think uh, Ethan Hawke has got a real flair for doing horror films, actually. Yeah, he does. He's really, I don't know if we pointed it out, he's really good in this, in, in Sinister. He's good in the black phone, too, just that I didn't really care for the film, though. 
Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, I don't think Ethan Hawke had done a horror movie previously before, before working with Scott Derrickson. And it's kind of cool. Like it reminds you like those back in the, uh, the old days where you'd have these great thespian actors being in these kind of like horror movie, you know, like you have, um, uh, uh, guy, what am I thinking? Uh, the Halloween. Oh, uh, are you talking about, uh, Donald Pleasance? Donald Pleasance. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Like great actor, but he's kind of like maybe slumming it in a, in a horror movie, but doing like just a, a, a great job or like, um, uh, George C. Scott in, oh. in uh, The Changeling and uh, Exorcist 3. You know what I mean? Like, you, you don't really see, like, a lot of big-name actors doing horror movies. Yeah, definitely. You know, but, uh, yeah, that... Oh, actually, um, that that was, like, uh, oh, The Hand, Michael Caine. That's... Oh, yeah. <laughs> great. That's a great guy example. you don't see in horror films too often, really, except that he was yeah. in uh, Dressed to Kill, too, which I thought was kind of cool. He was also in Jaws 4, one of the worst movies ever made. I, you know, Jaws 4, I don't know if I've ever actually seen Jaws 4. Oh, boy, you're really missing out. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually so bad, it's good. It really is. That's funny. So, yeah, man, that's, right that's the show for this week. And thanks for listening, everyone. Yeah, take care.